So what would God need to do for you to have all of you? What would God need to do for you to have all of you? Some people might say, if I get my dream job, absolutely, I'll believe in God. Some people might say, if I hit, I don't know, like $1 million in my bank account, like, I'll believe in God. If I meet the lover of my life, I'll believe in God. Um, I think some people might say, if God can actually perform a miracle right before my eyes, I'll believe God. Now, there's so many people in this world who would say that the reason why I don't believe in Christianity, the reason why I don't trust the Bible is because the Bible is full of signs and wonders and miracles, right? From Old Testament all the way to the Gospels, the New Testament, uh, the book of Acts in particular, you see the early church casting out demons, people being healed. You literally see people being healed as they're stepping on the shadows of, 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 of the apostles. And so you see these miracles, these wonders, these signs all throughout the Bible. And the question becomes, why don't we see that in our everyday life? Why don't we see God move in such a powerful way in our everyday life? People living in the 21st century wonder where God is, especially when it comes to signs and wonders and, and, and miracles. It's not that we question what happened in the past. It just seems like it's quite convenient for God to say that in the past he did all these things, and yet he's not really doing the same work today. And so uh, a lot of times we ask God, we, we, we request that God will do something miraculous, something that's out of the ordinary grab our attention. I remember when I was in high school, I was applying to different colleges, and I think I shared this before, one of the colleges I applied to was MIT. And it wasn't because I was smart. Like, it was just in the area. I was living in Massachusetts at that time. I just thought it would be great if I can stay in the area, and why not shoot for the stars, right? Um, uh, I, I didn't have the grades nor the SAT score to apply to MIT, but I thought at that time, because everything was with paper, it wasn't electronic, I was thinking people make mistakes, right? And so if they receive my application and somehow they are sorting these different applications uh, and, and, and there has to be a slight chance where the, the person who's, who's, who's deciding you know, whether to accept me or reject me, somehow my application, there has to be a, sm- a slight chance for me by mistake to be accepted uh, to MIT. Long story short, never got into MIT, uh, but the reason why I, I, I think I did that, I applied to that school, even though I paid a, a lot of money to do so, is because I really wanted to experience the power of God in such a convenient way, right? So uh, I, I said, yeah, God, if, I know my scores don't deserve to go to MIT, but if you put me into MIT, I'll, I believe truly that, that, that you're alive, that you are powerful. I did the same thing when I was applying to med schools. Uh, when, um, after, when I was about to finish college, normally you would apply to different schools because it's so competitive. I only applied to one school. And it's not because, again, my grades were outstanding. It was simply because, you know, I wanted to test God. I wanted to see if he can do the unthinkable. I actually wanted that to be my testimony, that to the rest of the world, to my parents, that, God, I, I applied to only one school trusting you, and although my grades didn't deserve to be, be accepted, no, you accepting me, that will be a sign of your grace. Uh, some, for some people, you know, it might be academics. For some people, it might be meeting the person of your dreams. Uh, for some people, it might be the success that you're craving for. In whatever shape or form, deep down inside, a lot of times we want to see 
God move in power. We want him to prove to us that he's absolutely capable and working for our good. And now the question becomes, why doesn't he show more signs and wonders in our life if he's able and he, if he loves us? Now, the same question was asked by people in today's passage. We know from last week, this is happening in the context of a miracle that was performed. Jesus, he cast out a demon that was in this man. He was unable to speak because of this demon. And just with, with his power, just cast out this demon. And the man was able to speak. And the crowd watching all this, they were amazed. But then you have a couple people who say, well, the reason why Jesus can cast out demons is because he, he's working for the devil. Because he's working with the power of the prince of the devil. And so, uh, so their assessment of Jesus was that his intentions are evil. His source of power is evil. And so he cannot be trusted. And then you had a group where it says in verse 16, the Bible simply says they kept seeking for signs because they wanted to test God. In other words, casting out a demon, healing a mute person was not enough. They said, okay, that's quite nice, but we want more. God, we want you to do more things in our lives. We are not, uh, we not, we're not sold right now. We still need further evidence. In other words, prove yourself. So I think we can identify with a lot of the people that, um, that, that, that were saying, hey, God, give us more signs. Because we, too, in our everyday life, we demand signs, maybe not directly, but deep in our hearts, we are wishing for something wonderful, something crazy, something supernatural, so that we might be able to believe God in a, in a better way. But it says in verse 29, this is Jesus' response to the generation that was demanding signs. It says this, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So this generation, this group of people, they're craving for a miracle, a sign. And Jesus says, well, there's nothing else that I can give you but the sign of Jonah. So the question now becomes, what is the sign of Jonah? We know from the Old Testament that Jonah was a prophet. He was called by God to, to share a word to the city of Nineveh, which was one of the main cities of the kingdom of Assyria. Assyria was this powerful country that was threatening Israel. And so instead of responding to God with a yes, Jonah, he says, absolutely not. And this great city is evil. They are wicked. They don't fear you, God. They don't deserve your message. So instead of saying yes and obeying God, Jonah says, I'm going to run as far away from Nineveh. And so he gets on a boat. And we know that, you know, he hits uh, this great storm. And, and through this process of, of uh, casting lots, he comes clean. And he says, well, the reason why you guys are in the midst of the storm is because I'm running away from God. So the sailors, they say, okay, what shall we do? And Jonah says, well, throw me into the ocean. And, and so Jonah goes into the ocean, and when he's in the midst of this ocean, a great, a great fish came along, and he swallowed Jonah. And we see that through this process, after three days, Jonah was back on dry ground, and he was called once again. But in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus speaking of the sign of Jonah, this is what he says in Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, Jesus, he's connecting the dots. 
He's telling the people, hey, you know that story from old, uh, the story of Jonah. You know that's in the Bible. Well, guess what? That story is pointing to me. Just like Jonah was in the, the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, soon the Son of Man, myself, I'm going to be at the heart of the earth. So he's pointing to his death and resurrection. He's pointing to this, this future reality that, that he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die on behalf of the sins of the world. And he's going to be buried and he's going to rise again on the third day. So what we see is this. Jesus offers a great sign. And what is that great sign? The ultimate sign is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the first point I want to make. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate sign that we need. To a generation that is craving for a sign, that is wanting a miracle, Jesus responds to their question and says, hey, the only sign that you need, the only real miracle that you need is actually the sign of Jonah. It is the death and resurrection of the Son of God. It says in verse 30, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. In other words, just like Jonah carried the message of God to this wicked group, the people of Nineveh, the Son of Man, he's going to come just like the prophet Jonah and share the message of God. So the second point I want to make is this. Jesus, he is the greater prophet. Not only is the sign of Jonah the, the ultimate sign, but Jesus is the greater prophet. That he is the better Jonah. He was a man on a mission, just like Jonah was a man on a mission. That his mission was to carry out this, this, this message to the people of Nineveh. It says in verse 32, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater, someone greater than Jonah is here. We see this comparison between Jonah and Jesus, the ministry of Jonah and the ministry of Jesus. Yes, yes it's similar in a way that both were called, but Jonah, he was called to, to preach the word of God. Jesus is the living word of God who came in the flesh. Jonah said, I would rather die than to share this message so that sinful people can repent. Jesus said that I'll actually die for wicked people so that they could repent. Jesus, uh, Jonah was the reluctant prophet. Jesus is the willing prophet who gave his life. Jonah saw the king of Nineveh fall on his face, come down from his throne, repenting being sorry for all that he has done. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who came down from his throne so that he would lead others into repentance. We see that Jonah, he was in the belly of the fish for three nights and three days, and then afterwards he was vomited out. But we see Jesus, he was at the heart of the earth for three days and three nights in the tomb. And then he defeated death through resurrection. And we see that Jonah, his message saved one nation Jesus, his message will save every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every person who's willing to repent before God. They will be saved. So Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater prophet. What Jesus is saying to his passage is this. As much as the people of, of Nineveh were saved because of the works of Jonah, you can be saved today as well because the one who's greater than Jonah is right here. So Jesus is the greater prophet. And the third thing that I want us to see is this. Jesus is the greater king. Jesus is the greater king. Look at verse 31. It says this. The queen of the south will rise up 
at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So it's not just someone greater than Jonah, but something greater. Someone greater than Solomon is here. And what we see in verse 31 is there's this queen of the south. If you go to 1 Kings 10, 2 Chronicles 9, you kind of get the backstory of, of, of this, this lady, the queen, queen of south in, in Chronicles and Kings. She's called the queen of Sheba. Now, we don't know where this place is. Some people say it's Ethiopia. Some people say it's Yemen. We don't know exactly where it is. But one thing that we do know is she came a long distance. And so this is happening right after Solomon created a temple for the Lord. He said, God, I want to create this because the Ark of Covenant is back, and I want to create a house for you. And then afterwards, uh, he blesses the temple, and he prays. And in the midst of that prayer, God says, Solomon, you did so many great things for my name. I want to bless you. What do you need? And what does Solomon say? He says, give me wisdom. Like, and it's not for selfish reasons. He says, you call me to be a king, but I feel so weak, so, so young. I'm not experienced, so I need your wisdom, God, to faithfully lead your people. I need to know what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. And so God, he gives Solomon wisdom. And in, in 1 Kings chapter 10, we see is this queen from Sheba, this queen from the south, comes a long distance. She heard the story of, of Solomon. She heard that this man has great wisdom. And she says, well, I heard of it, but I wanted to see it for myself. I couldn't believe it until I would experience this wisdom myself. So she brings all these hard questions, and Solomon is able to answer all these hard questions. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 8, this is her response after hearing all that Solomon said. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And so this queen from the south is praising not just Solomon, but the God of Solomon. She's not just praising the wisdom of Solomon, but the God who gave Solomon the wisdom. And what we see is it's not just Solomon that, that, that she's recognizing, but the people that he's ruling over. The nation of Israel, she says, well, happy are the men there. Happy are your servants because you are such a wise king that you lead your people not astray but to righteousness. You rule with justice and, and, and everything that you do, every decision that you make is, is spot on. And what Jesus says in today's passage is, as much as Solomon was a great king full of wisdom, I'm better. Like, I'm the greater king. He says in today's passage, something greater than Solomon is here and that is good news because our king knows everything and he owns everything in first corinthians 124 it says christ the power of god and he is also the wisdom of god colossians 2 3 says in whom christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and the result of following this wise king is that the people are happy the people are content the people are satisfied and so what Jesus does is he takes these Old Testament stories and he twists them and he says, hey, in order to properly understand these stories, you have to understand that those stories point to me. And so Jesus, he is the greater prophet. Jesus, he is the greater king. And if this is true, if Jesus is the greater prophet, the greater king, it demands a greater response on our part. 
Jesus demands a greater response. The response that we ought to give him is, first of all, repentance. Repentance. It says in Jonah 3, 4, when Jonah began to go into the city of Nineveh, going a day's journey, he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. In other words, Nineveh is going to fall, going to be destroyed pretty soon. Jonah literally says eight words. And what happens next? Jonah 3, 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In other words, their response to this, this message from the prophet was repentance. They were sorry for what they have done. They repented of their sins. They, they would come down from their place. They would fast and, and pray for God's mercy, for God's compassion. And what we see is in today's passage, the men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with the generation and condemn it. In other words, in the final judgment, when Jesus raises the living and the dead, the men of Nineveh, they will not stand in the judgment, but they will condemn people in the judgment. Why? Because they have repented. So they don't face the judgment of God. They are, they are saved from the judgment of God, for they repented. On the other side, the wicked, evil generation that, that's just demanding signs and wonders, and they're unwilling to repent and submit to the lordship of Jesus, they will be condemned, the Bible says. The queen of the south, she too will rise up in verse 31 at the judgment and with the men of the generation and condemn them. Why? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So you have this, this pagan queen who came this long distance from the ends of the earth and she was willing to submit to Solomon, recognize the greatness of God. And what the Bible says is this, she is saved because of her decision. However, the generation that's asking for signs and wonders will be condemned. A lot of times we get so caught up on the miracles of Jesus that we forget that behind every miracle is a message that's given by Jesus. You don't have random miracles that are thrown out to impress people, but behind every supernatural act of Jesus, there is a message that God is revealing to us that there is life and death, good and evil. He's reminding us that the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus says, repent and believe in the good news, in the gospel. A lot of times we're so caught up on the miracles of Jesus that we forget that we have a responsibility to respond to the message of Jesus. You know, these two, two individuals or people groups, you have the people of Nineveh who were a pagan city. You have the queen of the south who was a pagan queen. These people were far too distant from God. These pagans were, were, were away from Israel. The people of Nineveh, they were too evil for the holiness of God. And yet what happens is when they were willing to repent, when they were willing to praise God and acknowledge his worth, they were saved. So Jesus is worthy of a great decision. If he is the greater prophet, he is the greater king, he is worthy of a greater decision. And the question now becomes, if God sent us, Jesus said, he is the light of this world, that he is the ultimate sign, the greater prophet that brings the ultimate message of God. He is the greater king that displays the rule of God. Like, why aren't we repenting and praising God in the way that we should? And verse 33 gives us that reason. Why does this generation struggle to repent and struggle to honor God? It says in verse 33, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, 
but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. In other words, when there's a lamp in the house, other people can see, uh, other people can maneuver within the house because of that light. You don't hide the lamp and hide the light. But it says in verse 34, when you have light, when you see light through your eyes, your body can respond. So your eyes see clearly, your body can respond rightly. The reason why you're struggling to repent is because you don't see clearly. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Your problem is not that you're not doing enough for God. Your problem is that you don't see Jesus clearly. And I, I totally believe this, that when things are dark and your eyes don't see clearly, your body makes some bad decisions. Um, I think a couple months ago, it was on a Wednesday night, or a Thursday morning actually, early morning. Uh, on Thursday mornings, I normally pray. Uh, for uh, pray uh, and, and preach for the early morning uh, service at our church, and so I was here at church around maybe 4:30, 5 a.m. And I'm really tired. I'm still half half asleep, so I don't know how I made it to the parking lot. I'm sitting in my car, and all of a sudden, I feel really thirsty. And and so normally I keep some water in my car, and so I look down and say, "Oh, there's a water bottle. Great." And so I drink out of that water bottle, but something tastes funky, like. And I, I thought to myself, can water go bad? Like, it doesn't taste right. And then it's like a flashback. It's like one of those movie scenes where, like, you have a flashback. from. And I go back to last night. And I remember, after a while now, we got in the car, and Timothy tells me, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and, 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 and being the good father I am, right, I'm, I'm too lazy to go to the bathroom. And so I, I look around. There's a water bottle. I drink all the water there. And it's like, hey, Timothy, here you go. This is my grace to you. Like, yeah. and, then, and then he goes, he, he, he takes care of his business, and, and I'm like, okay, I'm too lazy to throw it away right now. I'll just put it on the side. And all this comes in like a split second. I'm like, and I just, I just spit everything out, right? I don't care where it goes. I open the door. I spit everything out. Now, uh, I don't know how you think of me, but I'm like, that's not my drink. Like, that's not my thing. Uh, the reason why I made that decision is because I just couldn't see. It was so dark. Like, I just thought, literally, I, I, I grabbed the bottle and I drank it. And, and you might think, man, that's a cra- crazy decision. Like, when we are blind spiritually, we make decisions that are more radical than this, that are more devastating than this. Good thing that I didn't swallow. Uh, but you might think that's disgusting. When your light, when your eyes are blind and the light in your heart is dim, you tend to make more disgusting, devastating decisions. And I do, do too. And that's exactly what the Bible is saying in verse 34. The eye, it's based on the eye, what you see, that the whole body moves. If the eye is healthy, the body is healthy. If the eye is bad or blind, then the body is, is full of darkness. And so Jesus, his, his command is this in verse 35. Therefore, be careful. Be careful of what you see, lest the light in you be dark. Darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its ray 
gives you light. So Jesus wants us to live in the light. He wants us to live in righteousness. The only way, though, that we can live in this light is if we have the true light inside of us. Jesus Christ, he is our lamp. The word of God is the lamp to our feet. And so Jesus is encouraging us to change our perspective. A lot of times we think, if I have another miracle, if God does something crazy in my life, I'll obviously believe in God and never doubt. You know, what happens after God provides a miracle to you? Maybe there were moments in your life when you were like, oh, man, thank God, God, that you came through. You did this for me. What happens after a couple of years? You can't even remember what God has done. If signs and wonders were the solution to our life problems, then the Israelites would have never failed God. If their unfaithfulness was not a result of a lack of sign, of lack of wonders. In fact, they were bombarded with signs and wonders time and time again. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is our wicked heart. The problem is that our eyes are blind. No matter how, 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 how much God reveals to us, the truth is deep down inside, the reason why we want signs and wonders is not because we want to be more faithful to God. It's because we just want something from God. We want good things from God. It's not so that we can be a better Christian. It's so that I can just get what I want. A lot of times, that's the, really the basis. If we're honest with ourselves, that's why we're demanding miracles and signs. And what Jesus is saying is this. There's nothing better that I can offer to you than myself, my life, my resurrection. That's it. That's the ultimate sign. Is that not good enough? Me going to the cross, dying for your sins, taking the shame, the blame, the hurt, and the pain, the sorrow that comes with all your brokenness, dying for sinners, being buried for three days, and then defeating death in a, in a beautiful way, in a convincing way to the point in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that we have evidence, we have, we, we have witnesses, 500 people at one point saw Jesus at the same time, and therefore we have assurance of the resurrection of Jesus. Is that not good enough? God is saying. What would God need to do to have all of you? And you might say, well, signs and wonders, but really, if God did all that you wish would happen in your life, would you really understand the true nature, the character, and the plan of God? Or would you just be satisfied with what you have and walk away? I think God knows our heart. He knows that our problem is not another miracle. The solution that we need is actually repentance and praise that God is allowing us to see that there is no greater miracle than the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some people deny the resurrection of Jesus, like just blindly and completely, but there are some people who would say that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they don't live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. In Romans 10, 9, it says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And based on this, some people say, I totally agree that that's something happened in history yet it has no relevance whatsoever in my life. If you believe in the resurrection and all the promises that come with the resurrection, then in the midst of, of death, in the face of death, then you can be confident. 
like in the midst of the pandemic, we've seen so many first responders, like doctors and nurses, jump into the situation. When people were staying away from others, like these people were jumping into the situation. I know so many Christians who were willing to take on the challenge, and the question might be, well, aren't you afraid that you're going to die? Aren't you afraid that you're going to get sick? And the answer is that if, if I die today, I know where I'm heading. And if I die today, I know who has hold of my family. God, he is worthy. He is able. So if he was able to defeat death, then I don't have to be afraid of death. When you are facing temptations, when you feel like there's a situation that's absolutely dead, hopeless, maybe it might be you're praying for your marriage, you're praying for a child, maybe you're praying for a breakthrough spiritually, and you feel like, man, this is absolutely dead. The resurrection gives you hope because against all the odds, God did the greatest miracle and if God can bring a person back to life and if he can defeat death when it seems like all all the odds were stacked against Jesus can't he come through in your life it gives you a reason to hope against the hopeless like even in the darkest moment of your life you can still have hope and peace because of the resurrection now the question becomes not only do you believe and agree with the account of the resurrection are you living in the power of the resurrection let me share how you can live in the power of the resurrection you acknowledge not just that jesus raised was raised from the dead but you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord you surrender to him just like it says in today's passage repentance and praise those are the two proper responses to the message of jesus and the miracle of jesus in the midst of life struggles you say god i don't need another sign because i have been given the greatest sign of all that jesus his truth is absolutely worthy that his truth is worthy of my praise and worthy of my repentance and so Rather than looking for another sign in your life or waiting for the next wonder in your life, why not look at Jesus? Why not look at his life, his death, his resurrection, and allow his life to speak truth and shine light into your life? So let's trust him, follow him. Jesus, he's not just in the business of impressing people. He's here to save people. And that's why he wants you. Amen? Let's pray.